Hello, listeners. A few weeks ago, I shared with you that I'm teaching a class on February 19th called Five Things I've Learned About What It Takes to Get Published. And I'm looking forward to this two-hour time to share with writers, aspiring authors, and authors alike what I know about the publishing industry and all its ins and outs. Some of you know that I was an acquiring editor for over a decade before I started She Writes Press, and I saw firsthand the behind-the-scenes thought processes from inside publishing houses, including what editors want, how book publishing thinks about the books it acquires, and the authors it wants to publish. And sometimes these kinds of classes or information sessions can be a little sobering, and I know I have a reputation for telling it like it is, but it's important to know what you're getting into, especially if you have big ambitions. Publishing a book is one of the most important creative endeavors you'll ever embark upon. And my goal in this class is to help you understand the terrain and know not only what you're up against, but also to share some tips about positioning yourself to succeed and to become the exact kind of writer you want to be out there in the world. I promise it will be inspiring, not just sobering. So join me on February 19th. You can find all the details on my website at brookwarner.com under the events tab or at my5things.com under the class section. And now we bring you this week's Right Minded. Hello, revisionistas, editors, copy editors, developmental editors, line editors, proofers, grammarians, and visionaries. I'm Grant Faulkner, executive director of this global rough draft machine, National Novel Writing Month, and I'm here with Brooke Warner, founder and head of She Writes Press. And Brooke, I mentioned our respective places of employment because I recently talked with one of our listeners who told me she didn't know our podcast was actually a joint project between NaNoWriMo and She Writes, so I thought I'd better make that clear to everybody. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, yeah, you know, I think anytime you collaborate, people just make sense of it in whatever ways make sense to them. And I am good with that. Uh, I was thinking actually how many collaborations I'm a part of, and I'm tethered to at least five significant companies or organizations, which feels like diversifying, like I'm protecting myself somehow. <laughs> Sometimes I find it hard to know who I'm affiliated with. So <laughs> here we are, we're affiliated with ourselves, we're affiliated with NaNoWriMo and She Writes, uh, but we're always writers and always doing the work of educating and helping writers in some way. And today we're going to hopefully help people with a stage of writing that many find confusing and daunting, uh, but some find it inspiring and perhaps uh, the most enriching stage of writing. So that means, yeah, we're going to focus on revision. And I can't believe we haven't done a true deep dive into revision because there are some writers who think revision is the most important stage of writing. You know, there's that old phrase, writing is rewriting. And I think writing is writing as well. But one thing we're going to explore today is how much drafting and reimagining go into revision. So they're not entirely distinct stages. And one thing I've noticed over the years is that I meet a lot of people who love to write rough drafts and hate to revise. And conversely, people like me who can live for eternity in the land of revision. So, Brooke, do you find yourself in one of these writer types or do you like both stages? And if so, why? It's a good question. And I think I have to say that I like the generative stage better. But there's a caveat there. And that is that I have mainly written prescriptive books up until now. Uh, and so the generative phase has been a place where I feel a lot of confidence. And I think when you write nonfiction, uh, you know, especially on a topic that you're an expert in, 
I mean, I will not say that you don't need to revise, but you certainly don't spend the kind of revision time that you would if you were writing a novel or a memoir. So now that I'm in the memoir, I can already see that the revision is going to be heavy. And I mean, like really heavy. And I'm taking solace in it, actually, because it's the only thing that's allowing me to continue to generate is just knowing that I'm going to have that space to go back and revise. So yeah, just thinking about things like language and metaphor choices and the work to make something more descriptive and more scenic, all of that stuff. So I have to say, Grant, check back with me in a year. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, I know you love revision because we have talked about that lots of times in the past, but I don't think that you've shared, you know, what you love about it so much and why you could live there forever. Yeah. Well, one, I'm going to look forward to hearing your thoughts in a year, Brooke. So I think we should calendar an episode (laughs) on revision in 2024. I think revision is interesting because it's, it's, it's often misunderstood. Some writers approach it more on the level of a copy edit, for example, you know, they're just cleaning up grammar and typos. Other people think of it as a time mainly for cutting and tightening. Both of those elements uh, play a role. They're definitely present in revision, but I, but I think we have to reconstruct the word revision and start by focusing on the vision part of the word. Revision isn't just tidying up, in other words. It's a, it's a, it's a visioning process or an opportunity to re-envision your novel. So you have to look at the big picture. I actually do like what-if brainstorming with my completed rough draft, this, and, and that's the same kind of what-if brainstorming I do to prepare to begin writing that rough draft, you know, and, and I've been known to, to write an outline for my novel after writing the rough draft, you know, usually that's done before the rough draft. But I think that this process of discovery, it's, it's good to, to go back and do some of those exercises again, you know, and, and break your, your novel apart scene by scene uh, to focus on, you know, fleshing out a secondary character or subplot. So in the end, I mean, I mean, the reason that I love it is that it elevates my novel into kind of this big picture project, in other words. And and I should note that, that this all generally takes a long time, but that, that's part of the joy of it for me is just that deepening into the story and, and, and getting a deeper view of the characters. That said, uh, Brooke, do you have any favorite revision tips or how do you approach revision? Yeah, I guess I I have some tips because again, like I I think I'm not much of an expert in revision. I mean, except of course that I've gone through tons of revision processes with my own writers. And so I've learned a lot in that process, but I I feel like I'm going to be entering into it in a whole new way in this coming year. But uh, the best tip I know, the one that I've gotten the most feedback from anyway, from the authors that I work with is to print out the entire draft. Uh, That one is just like hugely popular, right? Three hole punch it, stick the thing in a binder, and then you comb through the entire manuscript without a delete key, which I think is essential. Uh, And then there are a lot of things that you can do with that draft. You can take notes in the margins, you can color code, you can highlight themes. With memoirists, I uh, recommend figuring out what the primary takeaways are. And that is an exercise that writers like a lot because it forces them to take in the book in a different kind of way and think about what their reader is going to get out of it, which is something that Peter is going to talk about in the interview today. Uh, And, you know, there's also just something very amorphous about reading on screen. I think we've actually talked about this when we've talked about uh, reading on some previous episodes, but it's really difficult to know where you are when you're reading on a screen. And I mean, like physically on the page, right? Because there's no page. And I read online a lot. And if I need to flip back a few pages, like virtual pages, I can't figure out where I was, you know, I'm like swirling around trying to find my spot. 
I never do that in a book, you know, like I know exactly, oh, that was two pages ago. Like our brains are just trained to figure that out. And so it's true also with your printed out manuscript. So, you know, add in color coding and, and note taking, and it's just an awesome way to go through a whole draft. And then another revision tip I like is doing a single pass for a particular craft point, right? So one pass for sensory detail, one pass for characterization, one pass for reflection for the memoirists. And I think this forces a sort of specific attention, obviously, right, to one element of craft. And then it gives you this real laser focus to improve in that one area. Because uh, when you're just doing everything, it's too much to hold. So those are just two. I mean, there are lots, of course. And as I like that at the end of the interview, Peter said, you know, we could talk about this forever. And it's true. I mean, this could be a two hour or a weekend long topic. So what are a couple of your favorites, Grant? I follow a template of sorts, and it includes several of the ingredients you just mentioned. I, I always wait a period of time, maybe a couple of months uh, after I'm done with a rough draft, and then I print out a copy of my book and read it, read through it just like you do. I think waiting a couple of months or even more to read it gives me objectivity, uh, as does printing it out does. Uh, when it's printed out, I, I feel like it's more like a real book when I'm reading it on the page, and I, I can take notes in the margin and mark strong scenes and weak scenes or new ideas or even make cuts. And I don't focus too much on the small stuff, but if I catch a typo, I can't let it rest, definitely. And then I dig into structure, you know, that big picture stuff. And I, I might outline the whole novel, as I mentioned, to, to, to better see what's there, but also as a way to brainstorm. And I'll generally write more in this first round of revision because I find that I need to expand the story to keep exploring it. And I've talked to many novelists who tell me that that only 10 or 20% of their rough draft ends up in their final draft. And that's because they're still writing it and exploring their ideas in revision. And, and I think that's key to the whole process. I'm exploring the novel. I'm spelunking deeper and deeper into the cave. And, and, and that's the joy to go deeper into my characters, deeper into the themes of the book and to, to see things start to come together, you know, and to take a shape that sometimes even goes beyond my will. And that's one reason I like your method of reading it just to go deeper into a single element. You know, I really want to try that. Absolutely. And um, I love that word spelunking, by the way, I, I actually have spelunked in real life. And it's a very <laughs> cool experience. And, um, and this is also why I'm saying that I can see what's ahead of me for the memoir in this regard, because of those layers, right, and like this deepening and unpacking. And you talk about this writing experience a lot, you'll hear people say it's like excavating, right? So we have all these great metaphors for thinking about this way of, of peeling away the layers and, and getting to the essence. Mm -hmm. uh, and in the memoir or in fiction, you know, I'm thinking like you're a guide through a very intimate journey and then you have to paint a picture for your reader and you have to support them to see what you see, to find the meaning that you are finding along the way and, and also to enter into the scenes, right? That's a really important one. Like you can't break that fictive dream or you'll lose your reader. So there's just a lot at stake. And it seems to me that loving the revision part is a giant gift because the more you work at it, the more in love with it you are. And then the deeper you go and the more of a gift to the reader. But I also think the more ruthless you get too, and that this is a phase where you kill your darlings and uh, begin to see over time what uh, you know, what's not necessary. And then like, again, helps you get to the essence. So I'm wondering if you agree with that part, you know, the, 
the killing off part being important to revision. Yeah. Kill your darlings is probably the most repeated writing advice when it comes to revision. And I've, I've always had mixed feelings about it, but the gist of the advice for listeners who maybe haven't heard of it is that sometimes one of your favorite sentences or scenes or images might be holding back the story in some way. So instead of attaching yourself uh, you know, to stubbornly keeping it. Sometimes it's, it's best to cut it. And that's kind of liberating for you as a writer. And 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 there's no doubt I, I've found that to be true. And I've wasted an entire draft because of such stubborn clingings. But I think your words to get to the very essence of your story is a better way to think of this. Um, and I think that phrase that you use is, is more helpful and positive uh, because none of us really want to kill our darlings. It's just such a, you know, murderous phrase, I guess. <laughs> so, so yeah, I think I think the better decision making framework is to ask yourself: Is each element contributing to the essence of your story, and are you furthering that essence? So, to find and fully express that essence, I should note that I rarely do just one round of revision. I might do four or five, or or really, who knows, maybe more, because I'm always tinkering in some ways. So it's it's hard to know what really counts as a new draft. Totally. Tinkering, aka revising. It, it's a really good topic, Grant. And so I'm excited that you have brought on Peter Ho Davies for us to talk to today. And we will be right back with him after this very short break. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back, everybody. I'm thrilled to introduce Peter Ho Davies, our guest today. And Peter recently published the novel, A Lie Someone Told You About Yourself. His previous novel, The Fortunes, was a New York Times notable book. And his first novel, The Welsh Girl, was longlisted for the Booker Prize. He has also published two short story collections, The Ugliest House in the World and Equal Love, which was also a New York Times notable book. He is a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim Foundation and the National Endowment for the Arts, and he is currently on the faculty at the University of Michigan. And he recently published The Art of Revision, The Last Word, his first work of nonfiction, and the book we're going to focus on today. Welcome, Peter. Hey, great to be here, Grant. Lovely to see you and uh, Brooke. Yeah, thank you so much. And you know, Peter, I, I loved your book. And I think it's interesting that the foundation of your book is not in prompts and exercises, but in demonstrating how to think about the concept of revision. So it's, it's, it's really about developing a revision state of mind, I think. And so I was curious, why did you decide to take that approach? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought about this a fair bit uh, as I was getting into the book. And I think there are a lot of great craft books out there that have a lot of exercises, have long lists of tips that we might employ for many craft questions, but especially for revision. Um, the reason I think I lean against that or just I'm, I'm not inclined in that direction is that I think revision, part of its you know, bad reputation amongst writers. One of the reasons we resisted, I think, is that from pretty early on in our writing lives, even back in middle school or high school, revision feels 
very rule-based, right? It feels like somebody, usually some kind of teacher, is giving us a chore. It's about cleaning things up. It's about fixing things. I joke about it being like mom's advice to tidy your room. So it feels like somebody else is making us do it. Um, and I think for those reasons, I'm a little wary sometimes of the otherwise quite useful list of sort of stylistic tips and suggestions that we can move through as we work our way through um, through a revision. I think I'm just resistant to that sort of rule-based approach to this. So I wanted to go for something a little bit more expansive, I think, in some ways, um, and really explore why we don't see revision clearly and think into what it might be. And I think probably the goal here is to get away from the sense of it being um, something that is about perfection, uh, but maybe something that is more about discovery and exploration, I think, in certain ways. There's something more expansive to it than simply editorial work. Also well, a good segue to my next question, Peter, which is about your cover. Uh, the Art of Revision shows a cover with the title, The Art of Writing, but the word writing is crossed out and the word revision is in its place. So I was very curious about that cover decision. I, I'm Writing is revision, right? Absolutely. And that's one of the things we talk a little bit about in the book. I always feel that there's a kind of false uh, sense that we do the writing and then we do the revising, right? And so I tried to sort of break down that sort of um, that barrier by suggesting that even first drafts, because they're often, you know, written from some lived experience or some researched experience, are in a certain sense already revisions. Memory itself is a form of revision. So almost all of our first drafts are in some sense revising something, some lived experience, some researched experience in various ways. I mean, I think this is just a nice uh, instance that, that covers a nice I, I, notion of this, I mean, the, the series it's in is sort of the art of fiction, the art of writing. Um, and this actually is also the last book in that series. So in a certain sense, the crossing out of writing and, re and replacing it with a revision uh, feels like a nice uh, move for the for the series. And of course, it's also in that, um, that nice color blue, which is often kind of the editorial blue pencil, which feels kind of right for this as well. Huh, interesting. And I'm, I'm interested in the whole idea of memory being an active revision or writing your memories as an active revision, because it was interesting to me that the the kind of foundational example of revision in, in, your, in your book is a moment from your childhood that you've returned to several times in the course of your writing career and, and rewriting that memory in a number of different ways. So I'm just kind of curious about how, how you decided to choose to place that very personal and dramatic real life event at the center of your discussion of revision. Well, you know, we're always trying to think about ways to bring to bear uh, examples that will illuminate some of those we're thinking into questions of craft. And actually, in a certain sense, when you bring to bear examples of revision for folks, it can be a little dull because you're going to read one draft and then you're going to read another draft that mostly replicates what you've read before. So there's a certain kind of duplication going on in some of those instances. Um, this is more a, a process of taking an incident, as you mentioned, something from my childhood when I was about 13 growing up in Britain, when I saw my father sort of uh, intervene and protect somebody from a racist attack that was taking place on the street in front of us. And to think about how that memory of more than 40 years ago now has been revisited by myself in some of my fiction. You know, it's there in The Welsh Girl, it's there in The Fortunes, albeit in these refracted different ways. And even in the ways that I've thought into it over time, how I've told that story to other people anecdotally, how I've told it and now to my son, my father's grandson, how I thought about it and finally ended up telling it a little bit in the eulogy for my father after his passing away. So lots of different ways of revisiting that. And I think for me, it's a great example of that effort to re-understand a moment. Obviously, the reason I return to it is because it's obsessional to me, I think, in some ways. The, the, the major question being, 
why did my father intervene when nobody else on that crowded shopping street where we saw this attack took place? Nobody else moved, right? I think they were all very much like me as a child at that point, uh, frozen in place, not understanding what they were seeing. And so I sort of worked through various reasons why I think my father undertook that step, what it meant to me, how I felt into that space as well. And each one of them feels like it's a, another layer of the onion peeled away, a different understanding of what's going on. And for me, it's also an example of the, the revelatory power of revision. We think we know what our stories mean. We give one version, we give another version, but the more we think about them, particularly those that we're obsessed by, the more we return to them, the more they yield something else to us until maybe we finally get to that, that ultimate kernel of meaning, which I think strikes us with a force of epiphany, almost, um, almost in the same way that the movement through a great story or a great novel strikes us with a moment of revelation at the end. It's so interesting to me because you're talking about this idea of like what's revelatory to you and the power of meaning, but it's really two sides of one coin because it's also important and you write about this in your book to see uh, that meaning through the eyes of the reader, right? And you point to workshops and editors as a helpful way to hear from readers. And we all know <laughs> not all feedback is useful and sometimes it's even unconstructive. So as a writing teacher, how do you prepare students to give and receive constructive and relevant feedback? And particularly in light of what you were just talking about, which I find so interesting, you know, the peeling of the onion and like, we have to make meaning for ourselves, but of course we're also writing for others. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the strange things about this is that I think central to revision is not just the idea of rewriting, but it's also about rereading, right? So one of the great gifts when we share our work with others, a workshop, an editor, an agent, just a trusted reader, is that feeling that we get even before we've heard their feedback, just when we've given them the manuscript, right, as we wait to hear back from them, we begin to anticipate what they will say. We begin to see our own work through the eyes, not of our own eyes as it's writer, but through the eyes of its prospective reader. And I think that shift in perspective, which is maybe at the basic um, center of the idea of revision, re-seeing the movement from being the writer of the work to seeing it through the eyes of a reader of the work, that seems really fundamental to the process for me. So I think it's an enormous gift in those regards. Um, what I try and say to, um, it's funny, I was just um, talking to my graduate workshop a couple of nights ago. One of the things I try and say to those guys as they prepare, and of course, anxiously for getting all that feedback and that anxiety, you know, I think uh, is to be welcomed in the sense that it's an indices of how much they care about their own work, how important it is to them. I think if we weren't anxious going into a workshop, there would probably be something wrong in those regards. Um, but what I try to reassure them is, is that they know more about their work than we do, right? So that they have an authority through which they can filter all the feedback they receive from people, whether it's right or wrong, and they should you know, feel free to disagree with some of it, take some of it on board and filter it as seems appropriate to them. But I also want to suggest to them that um, while they know more about their work maybe than the rest of us do, they don't know everything about their work yet, that there remains the room for making those new discoveries and those new insights. And sometimes a reader can even see things in there that we weren't conscious of having put in the work or conscious of being contained within the work. It doesn't mean that it's not genuinely there in the work. Maybe we worked, uh, something entered into the text through our own subconscious in a certain sense. Um, but it feels that like we should be alive to those possibilities, seeing it and hearing from readers and maybe seeing through their eyes in, into our own work as well. That's so interesting, Peter, and I love how you use the word discovery and exploration, and and, and the, just this idea of finding new things as part of this whole process. And and sometimes, you know, I think probably if I ask people, the dominant 
review of revision, they'd, they'd say it's about cutting and tightening. Sure. But one of you know the metaphors you use in discussing drafts is that they are living creatures. They breathe in, they breathe out, they expand, they contract. So I was wondering if you could tell us more about how a revision expands and contracts and how it's essentially always changing shapes. Yeah, I mean, I, I like the idea of... Um, drafts and the work we're engaged in as a kind of living thing, uh, you know, going through this process of expansion and contraction, breathing in and breathing out, as you mentioned, uh, you know, partly because I think that uh, the very root of the word inspire is to to breathe, right? So it feels appropriate to think about it in the context of the work we're engaged in. I think the temptation very much after we get feedback, particularly from a group in workshop, maybe from trusted readers, is to say, I know I will cut the things that aren't working. I'll take those out. So I will basically remove difficulties within my story. Um, and that can be useful, of course, but it can also feel sometimes as though we can take some things that are interesting, some things that are a little gnarly, some things that we don't fully understand. We can take those out a little too soon. So there's always this sort of experiment that I suggest running. If something's not working in a text, before we take it out, maybe we should think about doing more with it, leaning into it in certain ways. In fact, I think often the things that we're most tempted to remove are when somebody says, I'm not even sure why this is here. And then we say to ourselves, huh, I'm not sure why it's there either, right? I'm not so that would make it easy to take out, but I think it also means that probably that thing that we're not fully conscious of why it's there is often maybe a sign of that subconscious poking through that there's something not fully perceived yet, something maybe that we have only intuited that may be of interest in that place. And leaning into that and exploring it seems worthwhile in some way. So um, the way I think about this in the book is I, um, I talk about these things as sore thumbs in a text, right? So it's easy to cut them off. You know, they're proud nails, easy to hammer them flat. But I think sometimes it's worthwhile sort of waggling those sore thumbs, exploring them before we get rid of them, I think, in certain ways. Because the things that we only half understand in our own work are often the places where, you know, something exciting might be just around the corner for us to discover. Well, we want to ask you about your new novel, A Lies Someone Told You About Yourself. And you wrote it at roughly the same time as you wrote The Art of Revision. So how did writing these two books inform one another, especially how did The Art of Revision inform how you revised this novel? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I you know, I think a, a lot of what I have to say about revision, of course, um, and a lot of what I say in a, in a classroom when I'm teaching is drawn from my own uh, tortured writing experience from true for many of us as teachers um you know these two books weren't intended to be written simultaneously um and they weren't quite written simultaneously they sort of toggled backwards and forwards between a draft of one i would turn to the other while i was waiting on feedback uh, from the previous project uh, but there was a certain point at which um uh, ed the editors of the two different houses that had both books were both proposing publication dates in the same season. And we actually had to sort of find a way, um, and people were, thankfully were very flexible about this, to sort of stagger those publication dates to make the working process a little bit more manageable. It wasn't fully intentional. It's sort of um, something that crept up on me, partly because the novel that we're talking about Elias, someone told you about yourself, is a book itself that sort of crept up on me. It started as a short story, uh, a story that began to grow, not that I necessarily knew it would grow into the short novel it is now. I kept thinking maybe it'll just be a longer story, maybe it'll be a novella, maybe it'll be within a collection. Oh, maybe it could even stand alone. So there's something about that process of it just unfolding before me um, that sort of caught me a little bit off guard and sort of ended up with this sense of these two books working their way forward simultaneously. But I think one of the things that... Um, uh, that informs them both oddly, and this goes back, Grant, to your question about that sort of 
personal memoir uh, that frames the art of revision is that's a story about um, my father and I, about fathers and sons. It touches a little bit on my son, the grandson in that in equation. So we're thinking about generations. And Eli, someone told you about yourself is very much of a family story. It's very much sort of about my experience of parenthood. Um, it's much about my son uh, in some kind of auto-fictional way, uh, you know, and mostly in his, you know, infancy uh, and early childhood. But there's a glimpse of a figure who's sort of his grandfather and feels based somewhat on my father. So there are odd ways in which materials from both are occupying similar spaces. There's a kind of refraction going on in those territories. So there's some kind of dialogue between the two of them that I'm not sure I can fully tease apart, felt as though it sort of contributed to both books in, um, in ways that enriched them. I talk with so many writers who they love rough drafting or writing the rough draft and they fear revision. And yeah. I, I actually am in the latter camp. I could I sometimes think I could live in revision for eternity, just not even finish the book, you know? <laughs> sure. And so I'm just curious, as in, in parting, what would you say to these people to help them love revision as much as they love drafting? Oh, I mean, I understand the fear of revision, right? The anxiety. I think it's somewhere embedded in the sense that revision, and this is where we hesitate before it, in certain senses acknowledges failure, right? You have to say to yourself, the original, the draft I currently have, this early draft that I have, it's not working. And then we have to say to ourselves, well, I'm going to change it, but we have to sort of, I think, acknowledge the possibility that the next draft also might not work, right? It might not be the same failure. It might be a different one in verses. And it's hard to confront those things, right? It's hard to look into those spaces. Um, there may even be a way, the reason that we hesitate before revision, because, um, you know, I think, I think of it sometimes as the story of a story, the story of how a story gets written. But the one thing we all know about stories is they have a beginning and a middle and an end. And the great anxiety about revision is it's very hard for us to perceive the end sometimes. It almost offends our sense of narrative, I think, in certain ways. Um, what, I, what I try to say to folks, though, is to suggest that um, it's a, a fallacy to think of the only successful draft we write as the final draft, that all the drafts that lie between that first draft and that final draft are contributing somehow to that success. So the way I try and formulate it is this idea that uh, my drafts are an experiment, right? They're testing a hypothesis. They're testing, will this form work? Is this the right style? Should the character do this in this next draft? Um, and that even if the answer to that is no, um, the experiment is successful. I've learned something from that. So again, it's that sense of embracing the discovery, the understanding of our work. And maybe the, the final sort of carrot at the end of the line here for me is that on those occasions when we arrive at that final point of doneness, which for me is a moment when I finally understand my own work, understand why I wrote it in the first place, understand why I started the journey with that particular piece of work. There's enormous satisfaction. We talked about that sense of revelation earlier on, but there's also a sense to go back to the earlier thoughts about our anxieties when we share work with a workshop or eventually with readers. When I understand my work to my own satisfaction at the very end of a revision process, you know, in some strange way, I'm at peace with the work and I don't actually mind what other readers make of it because my relationship to the work, my journey with the work has been completed. So there's a way in which it's a, um, it's the ultimate armor or defense against the great fear we have of critics or readers because uh, uh, at that final stage, 
the writer is the ultimate reader of their own work. Wow, that is so inspiring. I love how vision when you reach that end point it's, it's not like armor it's it's you found a home you found right. like a higher belonging you know yeah well thank you for those words uh, of inspiration i hope everybody who's listening will will find a way to love revision through those words so thank you so much for joining us <laughs> it's a pleasure thanks for having me thanks so much peter sure we'll be right back with today's book trend after this short break This week's trend is tackling a little bit of labor news in the publishing industry because employees of HarperCollins, one of the big five publishers, have been on strike since November, Grant, uh, and they're still striking as of the recording of this. And this is now the longest strike in the union's more than 80-year history. And there are around 200 publishing employees um, and primarily their younger assistants and associates who are striking. And their demands are actually pretty simple. They want the minimum salary increase from 45,000 to 50,000. They want the publisher to address diversity issues and they want to ensure that all eligible employees are in the union. Um, so, uh, you know, it's really tough to get inside the minds or decision-making processes of those at the top when it comes to these kinds of situations. But, um, you know, some people are speculating that it's getting stalled out because of the parent company, News Corp, and other people are just saying that these salary demands cannot be met. Uh, but, you know, you think at the bare minimum, given how much attention this is getting, that HarperCollins would be a little bit more transparent. Yeah, I've been following this uh, since its beginning, um, and I've tried to take the actions that I can, and NaNoWriMo has actually posted on social media about it. And while you think this is not a good look, I, I read an interesting op-ed uh, by a HarperCollins author who said basically there's not much authors can or should do, and I think that that's worth probing. Um, this is a piece by Dan Coyce, and he spoke to the tension authors are feeling because they want their books to succeed, of course. And he, he's also had a truly positive experience with HarperCollins on that level of producing his book and he wants to support the union and he spoke to other authors feeling that same tension and who have been you know walking this awkward line of promotion plus support of the strike and and just to be clear um i, I want to reiterate that i think supporting the strike is really important but this issue is you know different from other problems with other types of companies i guess because if you boycott HarperCollins books, you're also boycotting bookstores, perhaps, and individual authors. So it's uniquely, you know, hard to navigate as an author and a consumer. And I feel like authors, you know, need to use whatever clout they have to influence HarperCollins. But I know that that can also be difficult, especially for newer authors. For sure. I mean, I feel for these newer authors because in that article that you just mentioned, you know, they're talking, he was talking about like years of publishing dreams and, you know, what goes into the novel and the sense of excitement on publishing day that ends up being pretty bittersweet, right? Understandably so. Uh, but there are authors, uh, you know, ones who perhaps have less to lose or who have more clout in the industry who are speaking up. And I saw a tweet thread in December from Catherine Applegate, who wrote, among other tweets, <laughs> authors and agents are now openly refusing to work with HarperCollins. Rest assured, this isn't going to change. If anything, the pressure to take our work to other publishers will just increase. So that is quite a threat. And what I didn't know until I read the piece was that the strike resulted from the employees talking to each other about their salaries. And uh, you'll remember, Grant, that hashtag publishing paid me from the summer of 2020 and how revelatory that was. And, uh, you know, it's just a campaign of transparency, right? Authors sharing their advances. 
And then companies in publishing, and I'm sure elsewhere, rely on this thing of advances and salaries being a taboo to talk about. But then when it's not anymore, you're going to have to contend with people's feelings about low salaries and inequities. Thank God for the power of transparency, especially in, a, in an industry like publishing that does have so many taboos about talking about, um, you know, the financial things, especially for authors behind it and employees. And, you know, the cryptic nature of publishing in general has, has just diminished the power of authors and publishing employees. And unions, you know, in general have been playing such a big story over the past year. And I'm sure lots of our listeners have been following what's going on at Amazon at, at well and the very small wins but mostly losses that warehouse employees have experienced there. And during the week we're recording this in mid-January, Amazon is beginning its layoff of 18,000 employees. And it seems clear that this level of mass layoffs affects union organizing because people are worried about losing their jobs. And the success of the unions depends on the support of the very people whose jobs are on the chopping block. Totally. I can't imagine being in that position, uh, you know, and back to the Harper Collins employees, they're going on two plus months of not being paid and they're young. Uh, you know, the two sides remain far apart. And, you know, Harper, Harper Collins CEO says he feels that he's efforted and made strong offers and they're just not reaching an agreement. So I don't know, whatever is going on here, it's just not setting a strong precedent in the, you know, for the rest of the industry. Um, but whatever the outcome is, you know, people will be watching and paying attention. So I don't know. It's all up in the air for now. Yeah, we, sh- we should all keep paying attention, I think. Um, I mean, I think the publishers are being foolish because, you know, let's face it, if you do the math, paying people $45,000 a year in New York means that you're relying on hiring people who, who probably have money or have a parental safety net of some sort, which is one reason why publishing lacks diversity. So there are wider implications to this. And I hate to end on that down note, but let's let's flip it a bit um, in closing the show. Um, right-minded listeners, please Google the HarperCollins strike and find out the many ways you can help as readers and book buyers. Uh, because as I said, this affects us all in the end. We're all part of the reading and writing ecosystem, which means we have to take care of it just as we take care of our physical environment. And we need to think that one way to care for it is to listen to right-minded, which is why we're here every week uh, to nurture the soil of your creativity. So uh, please keep listening and we'll keep this conversation going.